Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you online as well. Uh, we've been going through the book of Joshua, and the overarching theme of the book has been about yielding to God. Uh, last week, Carl took us through the challenging chapters of Joshua, chapters 5 through 8, and even raised the question, is God good? Speaking of challenging, I think a maxim of life is this. Intense circumstances create interesting decisions. <laughs> maybe you can think of a season of life where that was the case. Or maybe you're in that spot right now. Intense circumstances create interesting decisions. During the uh, last uh, months of the failing business I was running around the turn of the century, there were many intense circumstances and many interesting decisions. Most of them came out of a good place. If we could just land one more account, or if I could get this in, or that in, we could just turn the corner. And this would go on month after month after month. They were stressful and desperate times. Speaking of desperate and stressful times, it reminds me of the story of four outcasts who came and were involved in a difficult decision. And these four outcasts were outcasts because they had leprosy on their skin and they had to live outside the city walls. And what made their situation exceedingly dire was there was an enemy outside the city who was besieging it and was just waiting and starving everyone to death. Well, these four outcasts, after time, looked at each other, looked at their situation, and they came up with some options. The first option was this. If we stay here, we will die. If we go into our city, we will die. If we go out there to the enemy, most likely we will die. But if we go over to the enemy and they let us survive, well, there's some hope in that. Grim options at best. And they chose the last option. And you can read the rest of the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a good one. But I tell that story because interesting decisions often come out of intense circumstances. And when we come to the ninth chapter of the book of Joshua, we come and learn of a group of people that are forced to make an interesting decision. Uh, the Gibeonites were a group of people and lived in a group of cities in the hill country of Canaan. And they found themselves between a rock and a hard place. The rock that they faced was that Joshua and the Israelites were coming from the east and starting to conquer and occupy the land. They had come through and taken over Jericho. They had come and taken through Ai. And now they sat on their doorstep. And I can imagine the Gibeonites may have been saying, are we next? Next? 
The hard place that they, that they faced was there was a group of kings in the cities to their south and to their west and along the Mediterranean coast that were all coming together and they decided, they saw these same things and they decided, oh, we're going to wage war against Israel. And by the way, Gibeonites, we expect you to join us. And I can imagine the Gibeonites sitting there thinking, are they crazy? Rock. Hard place. What would the Gibeonites do? What would you do? Well, let's pick up the story in Joshua chapter 9. In the ninth chapter of Joshua, we start out this way. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, Interesting, they heard about these things. Look down at verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard... So, we have groups of people hearing and understanding the same sort of things. But they choose to make different decisions. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, verse 2, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. You know, it's that time of year when young people and even older people dress up in elaborate outfits and all to go to trick-or-treating or to a Halloween party or come to a fall festival. By the way, kudos to Nikki and Sheila and their staff of, and their team of staff and uh, volunteers to make yesterday afternoon happen. I understand there was lots of people dressed up yesterday. Well, the Gibeonites would fit right in. Notice verse 4. So they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore worn-out clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. They got into this elaborate scheme. Well, oftentimes in military history, uh, deception is used to either put the enemy at a a point of complacency or to kind of, um, you know, cause misdirection. And why do they do that? Even in the book of Joshua, we see deception. Well, why do they do that? They do that so that they can attack. Well, it seems like the Gibeonites have something else in mind. Verse 6. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you? Where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, 
and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Shihon king of Heshbon, and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in the Ashtoreth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them, and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now we see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Gibeonites, when they came into camp, used several tactics to disarm the Israelites. The first tactic they used was their appearance. Worn out clothes, worn out sandals, wineskins, the bread, the whole works. And and they're basically saying to the Israelites, look at us, we're pathetic. We're not here to harm you. So they used their appearance to disarm the Israelites. Uh, They also used an appeal to the the Lord God. Uh, Notice how they kind of sidestep Joshua's questions, like, who are you, where you come from? No, they proceed to talk about what? What they've heard about the Lord and all that he's done. And you can imagine, from the Israelite point of view, hearing that, like, oh, okay, yeah, good. So they used their appearance, they used their appeal, but they also used a posture of servants. Did you notice how often the word servant was used? Uh, Verse 8, we are your servants, they say. Verse 9, your servants have come from a very distant country. Verse 11, we are your servants. Why have they gone to all these lengths? Why the elaborate deception and the big scheme? Well, I think we get a little bit of clue because what they were after was a treaty. Do you notice it was often used in the same thing. Make a treaty with us. Make a treaty. Even the Israelites, when they're talking back to them, they're talking about a treaty. See, the the Gibeonites uh, were not looking for conflict. They were looking for relief. They were not looking for turmoil. They wanted resolution. They were not looking for war. They wanted rest. The Gibeonites were seeking peace. Let me ask you today, as you're here, are you seeking peace? Peace for what? Or peace with whom? At this point in the story, the narrator shifts the focus from the Gibeonites to the Israelites. The Gibeonites have gone to great lengths with a lot of deception, very elaborate, and they've come in and put their cards on the table. Now, how will the Israelites respond? Verse 14. The Israelites sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them. Wait a second. Wait a second. Did you catch that right in the middle? The narrator's talking about all the negotiations that are happening, and he slides in, but they did not inquire 
of the Lord. Hmm. Let's, let's hold on to that. We'll, we'll circle back. Where were we? Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it with an oath. Three days after they had made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. It's interesting that at the beginning of the chapter, the tension that was in this story was with the Gibeonites. They were seeing what was going on, and they were nervous. And now that has shifted over to the Israelites. They are now the ones at unrest. We see their frustration. You can, you can identify with maybe the frustration and anger that would start to build up in them. Three days after the treaty was signed, they find out that these people are not just worn out, weary travelers. They're the neighbors. Granted, they're a few miles down the way, but they're still the neighbors. And I don't know how they exactly find out. The text tells us they heard that they were neighbors. Uh, maybe a scout from the Israelite camp came back one day, and he looks over and says, hey, what are those guys doing here? They live over in Berith, just 20 miles from here. Well, the Israelites had to find out for sure what was going on. So it says they, they, they got together and they went out on a three-day journey and they went to the cities, and sure enough, they had been duped. And here's the frustrating thing. They couldn't do anything about it. See, their leaders had ratified this treaty with an oath. And an oath taken in the name of the Lord could not be broken. And so they could not even touch the Gibeonites. And not only that, but they were in danger of incurring God's wrath on them for breaking the treaty. There's a reason Jesus tells us to just give our word instead of making an oath. Because when we attach God's name to something, it's serious business. Well, the frustration is building within the Israelites. They don't know what to do with themselves. They've been duped. And these are our neighbors. And you can imagine why the writer would say, and they all grumbled against their leaders. Uh, were they frustrated because they all had been duped? Uh, most definitely. Uh, were they frustrated because their leaders had not only signed a treaty, but ratified it with an oath? Most definitely. Uh, were they frustrated because now they were maybe jeopardizing God's plans, just like it happened with Achan several chapters ago? Maybe. Uh, was their frustration due to now that they had to incorporate the Gibeonites and factor them into their future? Probably. Well, tension and unrest had now just walked right into the Israelite camp and settled on in. This might be a good time to circle back to that thought 
about the Israelites not inquiring of the Lord. You know, the, the Gibeonites had gone to great lengths to seek a treaty of peace. And the Israelites, by not going to God and causing their unrest, find themselves at a lack of peace. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. It's almost as if they ran ahead of God. They did not slow down to even pause and think about the situation and to seek Him. And you can identify, you know, whenever there is an important decision to make, a key moment of life, maybe you're contemplating something, anytime really, it's a good idea to stop and pause and to seek God. And yet, having said that, I don't want to come down too hard on the Israelites because, well, I do the same thing often. And it doesn't matter which side it's on, whether things are good or things are bad. When things are good, everything's clicking and it's like we have a decision to make, boom, let's just make it. Or when things are bad and stressful and you're in a sense of urgency and you need to move on, boom, let's just make a decision and go with it. And we run and I know I run into the danger of running ahead of God. Instead of seeking Him, I run on ahead. Well, what does it mean, or what does it look like to inquire of the Lord? I'd like to introduce you to another Old Testament uh, character who I think gives us some hints on what it means to inquire of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we learn of the story of King Jehoshaphat. And King Jehoshaphat had some intense times that he was dealing with. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 2, we find this. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. Same words. And he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Well, right off the bat, we see that Jehoshaphat is resolved. And to be resolved means you're going to make it a priority in your life. Unlike the Israelites who kind of tasted that yucky bread and jumped to a treaty, Jehoshaphat had this same sort of intense time, and yet he paused and turned his attention to God. I think embedded in that, in that word resolved is this idea of resoluteness. You know, it's hard, it is hard to stop and pause. It is not in our nature. We want to move on and get things done, and make a decision. And so there's this resoluteness, this stick-to-itness that is required sometimes. You know, kind of like the Gibeonites, who went to great lengths to do everything to seek peace. Well, not only does Jehoshaphat resolve to inquire of the Lord, he 
declares a fast. And fasting is creating intentional focus. Intentional focus on God. And it's so that we might receive what He might have to say to us. Either through Scripture, or through the stirrings of the Holy Spirit in prayer, or even through the encouragement and insight of other believers. So the next time that we are, have a decision in front of us, maybe it's a key point in life where you need direction, or maybe there's a family dynamic that you have to work through. Will we take a few moments and seek God? It may take resolve. It may need some intentional focus. We may need to bring others alongside. You notice Jehoshaphat, he brought others, lots of others. He said, everybody come together. Because sharing that burden gets a little lighter when others are beside us. Some of you might be saying, though, Todd, I have been seeking for a time now. And it just seems like God is silent. Silence is hard. Silence is uncomfortable. And I'd like to honor your perseverance. I'd like to honor your perseverance and encourage you to continue in your journey. You have good company with saints of the past and believers of the present in their waiting. While it seems a little counterintuitive, Paul calls us to be joyful, prayerful, thankful in all situations. Even in the last few weeks of this study in Joshua, uh, Carl has encouraged us to uh, cultivate joy, to practice curiosity, to meditate on God's Word. And it is with these attitudes and activities that, that we grow in our relationship with God. Uh, it deepens. We get stretched. And yet in those very situations, something else happens. We open the door to God's peace that only He can give. And that peace is one that guards our hearts and our minds. May the words of Isaiah bring you hope today. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion for you. I'm not sure what would have happened had the Israelites paused and inquired of the Lord. Based on the story of Rahab and the outcome of Jehoshaphat's story, I'm inclined to think there would have been a solution. But here is something I do know, is this. Peace comes to those who seek God. 
Peace comes to those who seek God. But I think peace also comes in another way. Let's look back to our story. Verse 26. Joshua has to kind of step in and settle things down. Verse 26. For Joshua did not draw back. Oops, I'm at the wrong chapter. So, um, verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while you actually live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from services as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Joshua has to step in and settle some things down. And it's interesting, he kind of subtly redefines the terms of the treaty. Now, the treaty is still in place and the promises will be upheld. But because everything was based on a deception, he kind of changes the dynamics. Instead of a treaty where you have peer-to-peer, now it's more of a hierarchical situation where Joshua and the Israelites are kind of the lead in this treaty. And the Gibeonites now are cursed to a life of service. And they are to be water carriers and woodcutters. So in other words, they are to serve the Israelites, but not only serve the Israelites, but primarily serve at the house of the Lord, at the altar of the Lord. So Joshua kind of subtly changes these terms. And it's almost like he's asking uh, rhetorical questions because he doesn't let, let them answer. He just pronounces the judgment uh, on them and says, this will be your lot. But the, but the Gibeonites do respond. They answered Joshua in, chapter, in, in 24, verse 24. Your servants were servants. We've heard that word before. Remember? Several times. And you might think the first time they were saying it was maybe as a disarming uh, tactic, but I think they're serious. Servants. Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. You know, it's interesting when they came in, the Gibeonites, that is, came in the first time and they appealed to the knowledge of the Lord. You, 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 you kind of wondered if, that's, if those words were just that, words. You know, used to kind of uh, flatter, uh, to disarm the Israelites. But now we're kind of getting into a little more depth. They are talking about, we clearly were told. And they are beginning to describe now not only about God, but now they're talking about His plans. They go from hearing about God to talking and describing His plans. And by incorporating Moses, well, that gave it even more weight. And they say to Joshua, we are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right. Now some might say, well, of course they did all this. It says right here, they feared for their lives. And while that's true, I think fear sometimes can motivate us to evaluate 
our priorities. And for the Gibeonites, they knew what was at stake. They saw the signs. And it's interesting. Remember from the beginning of the chapter, there's a contrast between what the kings were deciding to do and what the Gibeonites were deciding to do. The Gibeonites decided, we're not waging war. We're going to go over and surrender. We're going to let go of our lifestyle and who we are. And we're going to let go. We're going to relinquish. We're going to yield. See, peace comes to those who seek God. Peace also comes to those who yield to His plans. The Gibeonites say to Joshua, we are now in your hands. To put yourself in their hands means they're giving themselves over to Him. They're submitting to Him. It's interesting that in verse 26 it says, so Joshua saved them from the Israelites. There's probably no greater peace than salvation. So as we think about putting ourselves in our hand, maybe today you identify with the Gibeonites. You've come to a point in life where things need to change. You see the signs. You're experiencing unrest and tension. And you're seeking something greater. Jesus told a parable about a merchant who was looking for fine pearls. And when the merchant found a pearl of great value, he went out, sold everything he had so that he could buy the pearl. The pearl for the Gibeonites was peace. They were seeking peace. And they went to great lengths to show and to desire and to seek this peace. So maybe you're in the seat of the Gibeonites and you're seeking peace with God. God sent Jesus into this world to save people like me and you. And those who believe in Him will be what? Will be saved. And experience peace with God. Will you yield to the living God? Will you put yourselves in His hands? I think that's a question not just for those that might be sitting in the seat of the Gibeonites or identifying with their plight. It's also for those of faith. Will we yield to the living God? Will we put ourselves in His hands? Or maybe let's bring it down a little bit more. Not just ourselves. What might the Holy Spirit be telling us to put in His hands? Our dreams? Finances? Health? Lifestyle? Our marriages? Relationships? what about our shortcomings and our failures? God calls us to yield to His plans. He calls us to seek Him. And you know what? 
It's hard. We want to hold on. We want to control. We want to make our own way. And yet God is calling us to yield. See, peace comes to those who seek Him and yield to His plans. Thankfully, no deception is needed. Thankfully, we can just seek Him. And we should also be careful of overlooking or taking for granted God's peace. Peace comes to those who seek Him and yield to His plans. The story of the Israelites and the Gibeonites reminds us to seek God, to yield to His plans. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned the failing business I was running about 21 years ago. Uh, That business went bust. Uh, We went bankrupt. Lost our home. 13 years in marriage, two kids, five and two, and we had to start over. Start from scratch. But it was in those times that God was faithful. God began to open doors. And God provided his peace. It wasn't easy. We were in a time of wondering and wandering. And we would seek God continually. It was a repeated activity. And we would yield to his plans even though we could not see what he was doing or even understand it. Yet he was faithful, and he brought peace. I share this story not to pat ourselves on the back or to evoke pity. I tell it to testify, to testify that peace comes to those who seek God and yield to his plans. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your unfailing love for us will never be shaken. And I know, Lord God, that I often run ahead of you, either just to move on or feel better about things. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the resolve to seek you, to bring others alongside. Not only that we'd seek you, but yield to your plans. We pray this in your name. Amen.